Well, throughout church history, one passage of Scripture has done more to tarnish the view of a woman's worth than any other passage. And it is the passage we are studying today. Genesis chapter 3. What happens when a man listens to a woman? The entire world falls into ruin. Or so the story goes. And I have to say, that's kind of how it looks, right? And last week, we were able to break away from the notion of women being created as menial subordinates who exist solely to do a man's bidding, to have babies and make casseroles. We realized, we learned, a suitable helper means way more than that. But today... As we move into Genesis chapter 3, is there any real hope of resurrecting a clear view of a woman's worth in the eyes of God from the rubble of Eve's rebellion? Or is this whole study a vain attempt to read into the Bible what isn't actually there? We are going to once again open our Bibles and figure that out together. Our main idea today highlights an aspect of gender equality that doesn't get a lot of airtime, but is absolutely fundamental to understanding what the entire Bible is about. Men and women are equally wrecked by sin, equally guilty before God, and equally dependent on his rescue from sin through the saving work of Jesus Christ. That is the main thrust of this passage. That is the main thrust of our lesson today. And here's how I've structured the lesson. It's a little bit different than I have in the past. We are going to spend the first part of a significant part of the lesson just walking through Genesis 3, verse by verse. I don't have a cute little outline for you for that. We are just, I mean, we're just gonna read it. I'm just gonna point some things out to you as we go along. So you have lots of blank space on your listening guide to jot down notes as you see fit. Then we are going to confront some common assumptions about women that are often derived from this passage. And we're gonna try, try to lend some clarity there. All right, so we're going to have these common assumptions, and then I'm going to um, present the truth of, of, of what we see, what we actually see in the text. So that's where we're headed. And um, again, no blanks to fill out in that second part. You are welcome. All right, just throwing it at you there. All right, well, let's go ahead and get started. Chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? All right, there's a lot packed into that verse. We have a new character introduced into the story. And he arrives on scene very abruptly. It's like all of a sudden there's this serpent talking to Eve. (laughs) And here's what we know from the actual words of the passage about this new character in our story. Number one, he is a serpent. Number two, he is cunning. Or maybe your Bible uses the word crafty, which 
We would never, ever see this in our English translations, but in the Hebrew, that word translated cunning or crafty sounds almost exactly like the word for naked used in the previous verse, verse 225. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame, all right? And the author would for sure want us to, uh, to, to, pick, up, uh, to pick up on this. Let's see, I've lost my place here. Let me find it. All right, so we see in verse 25, the man and the wife are just completely exposed. And they don't even know they're completely exposed. They haven't given it a second thought because there's been no need to give it a second thought. So at this point, both the man and the woman are oblivious to evil. They are completely unaware that any danger might be lurking. And the serpent takes advantage of this in a big way. It's their nakedness, their innocence that gives opportunity for his craftiness. And so that's why we have this really close connection between naked and crafty. Um, and again, we would, we would do well to, to see that and recognize that. It's unfortunate sometimes with our English translation, you don't get to pick up on some of those things. All right, so number three, we learned that the serpent is part of God's creation. Did you catch that? He is the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And this, of course, begs the question, why would God create something in full knowledge that it would serve an evil purpose? And if you have like the next 10 to 20 hours, we can hash that out. But remember in week one, we talked about the importance of asking the right questions of a text. For example, if you approach Genesis 1 with, with questions about the dinosaurs and the age of the earth, you're going to end up really frustrated because those aren't the questions that passage is supposed to answer. Same thing here. Now, this text can inform our understanding of where evil came from, but the questions it wants to answer are, what did they say the snake do, and, and what's the result? Right, so it explains the origin of human sin and guilt, but it does not explain the origin of evil. It wants us to be concerned with what the snake says, not where the snake came from. And by the way, there are two things regarding the origin of evil that the Bible does make very, very clear, and they're not hard to understand. Number one, it is not inherent in mankind before the fall. This is the one time in all of human history that evil was 100% an outside job, not present in their hearts at this point, okay? Number two, we know that evil is not the consequence of divine entrapment. We talked about this last week. This whole situation, it is not a setup for them to fail. God has actually set them up to succeed. He has provided great abundance, an entire feast for them to enjoy. All right, so we need to make sure we have those two things in mind as we're maybe pondering the, the, the origin of evil. Now, the passage does not expressly state that the serpent is Satan, but that's clearly inferred, especially when you get to the judgment on the serpent, uh, but then it's confirmed in the New Testament. And I had you look up a couple of those verses this week. Another thing very interesting thing about this serpent is that he speaks. 
In fact, this is what comes into view. This is kind of the main um, attribute of this serpent that we are supposed to take note of. Uh, and, And what are the very first words out of his mouth? Did God really say So we see right off the bat, I mean, right, he's just barely said anything. We see that he has a very clear agenda, and that is to discredit God in order to deceive God's children. So he starts out first by discrediting God's words. Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Now going back, we we spent time there last week, chapter two. Did God really say that? Well, let's look. Chapter 2, verse 16. Let's see. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good or evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will surely die. So what's on display in God's actual words is his love and his generosity. What the serpent wants Eve to hear is that God is harsh and that he is restrictive. You see the difference in the tone of God's actual words and the tone of Satan's quoting of God's words? Totally different. His next strategy is to discredit God's character. Take a look, verse two. So the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the tree in the garden, But about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. All right, we'll stop there. So let's start with Eve's answer, right? So so the serpent has said, did God really say? And, And she gives him an answer and she quotes the command that God had given him. Now, chances are, if you've been around the church for a while and you've heard your fair share of sermons, you've heard people make a big deal out of the minor changes in Eve's quotation, right? She adds a phrase, should not eat it or touch it or you will die. And the inference is often made that she is putting words in God's mouth that she herself is distorting what God actually said. Now, that's possible. What I wanna make clear to you is that that is unclear, We cannot state with certainty that Eve is putting God's words in God's mouth. How do we know this isn't what Adam told her that God said? Remember, she wasn't there when the original command was given, so she would have, I, I think we could safely assume, gotten it secondhand from Adam. Maybe he added that. Like, let's not even touch it, okay? <laughs> right? And maybe, maybe she did add the prohibition, but she did so... Uh, as, as a reflection of her desire to stay away, far away as possible. It should also be noted that quotation standards were different in the ancient world. So it was, it was important to reflect the original intent, but saying things word for word wasn't as big a deal as it was for us. That's why sometimes when the New Testament authors are quoting the Old Testament, you're like, dude, you did not get that right. But it, they're not working with our same standards of quotation practices, right? It was just a different mindset um, in the ancient world. So that could also be coming into play. All that considered, 
we probably shouldn't read too much into the word changing. And if we want to mention it and we want, we want to kind of um, infer from it, just, just hold that loosely, right? So it's possible, but we don't know for sure, all right? So that's how I would, would handle that. Now, in verse four, very significant, because the serpent full on calls God a liar, claims that God is holding back, holding her back from her destiny to know as God knows. And of course, the implication is that God is selfish and deceptive. And this right here is one of the main reasons why I am so passionate about helping women understand the character of God. Because there is no greater defense against sin than understanding that God is truly good. And listen, mama's in the room. You want to guard your kids against sin? Man, they can memorize the Ten Commandments and they can know all the rules and they can know all the laws and you can just go on and on and on about thou shalt not and thou shalt this. But let me tell you something, you want to guard them against sin, you put before them the beauty and the goodness and the love and the grace and the gloriousness of God because you fight sinful desire with that desire. (laughs) Why do we obey God? Because he's so good. And that command that at the moment seems restrictive and it is a reflection of his goodness. A God who is good cannot give a command that is bad. That's that's simple. A child can understand that. (laughs) And that is what we need to be proclaiming. That is what we need to be putting before them and ourselves. We've got to be convinced that God is good. Or let me tell you, move it in our culture and what's going on right now. Every single word of this book is dynamite. You better believe that God is good. Or you have to change God's word or you have to reject it altogether. And end of the day, that's, 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 those are your options. Either God is good and his commands are good, or we throw them in the garbage. <laughs> because it's not going to work in this world of ours. It's just not. All right, I got way off track. I'm just a tiny bit passionate about that, you guys. All right. Uh, where are we? All right. So at the root of this deception and sin, is it's a breakdown in who he believes God to be. And notice, <laughs> notice the serpent only, only spoke of what she would gain and said zero things about what she would lose. And you and I need to know he is still doing that today. So that sinful relationship, that activity, that attitude that we are convinced is gonna make our lives better or make our lives easier is actually not. We have been lied to. That is a lie. It's like when your kid watches a commercial and they're like, mom, I saw this commercial, the best thing in the world. And you're thinking that is so, like you've been lied to. You have been fooled. That is lame. We are not spending money on that. Right, but they're so convinced that it's gonna work, that it's gonna make their life so amazing. Well, that's Satan's doing that. He's like the infomercial guru of the world, you know? Like he's always making these false claims and they never come to pass. All right, verse six, let's, let's uh, read that. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. One of my favorite questions in the homework this week was on page 44, question number four. It asked this, 
on what did Eve base her decision in verse eight? And I told you to check all that apply. Is it what she saw? Yep. What she felt? Yep. The lies the serpent had told her? She's gonna be all wise now? Yep. The truth that God had revealed to her? Nope. (laughs) You couldn't check that box because God's revelation is no longer the means by which she is making decisions. And the results are tragic. So where is Adam, you guys? The Bible only gives us two words. He is with her. Now, how long he had been with her, we don't know. Did he hear this entire conversation? We don't know. But by the time she reaches for the fruit, he is right there. Does she have to twist his arm? Is there any resistance on his part implied? No. He is a willing participant in the overall thrust of the passage. And I tried to ask questions that would help you pull this out this week. The overall thrust of the passage is that they violate God's command together. This is a collective rebellion against God. It's a team effort. Let's pick up in verse seven. See what happens after this. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. All right, eyes here represent understanding. Again, it's emphasized. The eyes of Eve were opened. The eyes of Adam were opened. No, the eyes of both of them were opened. They sinned together and they feel the effects together. And this phrase, they knew they were naked, it's so huge. Because for the very first time in human history, fear, shame, and insecurity come into play. And I don't know about you, but every area of dysfunction in my life has something to do with fear, shame, and insecurity. People spend a lot of time and money treating the effects of, pain, of, of, of fear, shame, and insecurity. And it's really important that we understand where those things come from. They have their origin in Genesis 3, and they testify to the fact that things in this world are not as they should be. Something has gone terribly wrong and we need a savior to make it right again. Now, what do humans do when they're afraid and insecure and ashamed? We hide and we, we overcompensate. We come up with our own ways to cover over our insecurities and our shame. And how well do you think those fig leaves worked? Probably about as well as our modern attempts to mask our shame. And that could be a whole lesson all by itself. I saw a meme the other day that draws a distinction between religion and sonship. Religion is, I messed up. My dad is going to kill me. 
Sonship is, I messed up. I need to call my dad. And the saddest thing about this chapter is that that perfect father-child relationship between God and his people has been broken. And instead of running to him, they are running away. And what is God doing? He is seeking them out. Verse 9 is one of the most beautiful testaments to the grace and mercy of God in the entire Bible. He didn't have to show back up. He didn't have to call out. He didn't have to pursue them. And he didn't have to give them a life beyond Eden. But he did all those things. You know, God is omniscient, so he wasn't wondering where or where they were or what happened or who told them they were naked. He asked those questions both to model justice and to draw out a confession because Adam and Eve recognizing the full weight of what has happened is essential to their restoration. Let's take a look at Adam's answer to this question that God has asked. We see this in verse... um, Did I totally miss reading a part? Okay, let's look at verse eight. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And then he asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man replied, the woman you gave me to be with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree and I ate. So the Lord God asked the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Now the difference between the man's first recorded words about his wife in chapter two and the second recorded words about his wife in chapter three is startling. So in chapter two, he declares that she is a gift. And in chapter three, he's basically declaring that she is a mistake. And I want you to notice that Adam is the first in a long line of people who have used the immoral actions of a woman to excuse the immoral actions of a man. And these days it comes out in phrases like, well, she was asking for it. Or what did she expect dressed like that? Or the date rapist who said, she was all over me. How could I possibly be expected to stop? Did Eve give him the fruit? Yes. Did God give him Eve? Yes. Does this in any way, shape, or form secure Adam's innocence? The entire testimony of Scripture declares a resounding no. If you've ever been blamed for the sin of a man, I just I want to make sure you know that God didn't buy the excuse. 
Like he, he was not fooled. He knows exactly what happened. Like he was there. And he will right every wrong. You were never meant to carry the burden of someone else's sin. Well, the man isn't the only one who casts blame. Eve is just as guilty of that. And all these years later, this is still what we do when we're exposed. There's always a reason. It's always somebody else's fault. If only these kids weren't so crazy. If only I could get a break once in a while. If only my husband understood me. If only my life were easier, then I wouldn't fill in the blank. Well, in verse 14, the passage shifts into the judgment oracles. And it's important to understand. I talked to you a lot about, you got to know what type of literature you're reading. And it can shift even within the same chapter, right? So we got to know what, what, we're, what genre are we dealing with here. This is a judgment oracle. And it's important to know that judgment oracles are not commands. They are descriptive. Right, so they're declaring how life on earth must now be as a consequence of Adam and Eve's rebellion. So we're not in violation of this passage when we seek to alleviate the effects of the fall on our daily lives, meaning it's okay to get an epidural. Can I hear an amen? Woo! <laughs> it's okay to go to marriage counseling. It's okay, yeah, another Amen. <laughs> I'm a big fan of marriage counseling, you guys. Um, it's okay to use modern farming equipment to deal with those thorns and thistles, right? Like, it's okay. It's okay to, um, to alleviate the effects of the fall on our daily lives. And I mention this because it's relevant to our conversation. There are some strict complementarians who will take the last part of verse 16, where it says, and he will rule over you, speaking of the husband, over the wife, they take this as a directive for male authority. Now, there are verses calling men to leave their wives. This ain't one of them. Because judgment oracles don't direct. They describe. Okay? So let's see. What does he say to the serpent? He starts out with the serpent. He says, so the Lord God said to the serpent, verse 14, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. All right, so the first thing I wanna say is like, don't take this to mean that snakes used to have legs. I think some people, I don't, when I was a kid, that's why I always thought they used to walk around and now they have to like slither on the ground uh, what this means is that as a consequence of the deception, the serpent will now be a symbol of humiliation and defeat because that is what he has coming. There is going to be an ongoing war between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman, those without faith who oppose God and those with faith who serve him. And the unspoken question to the reader is, whose seed are you? There's a lot more I want to say about verse 15. We are going to circle back to it at the end. All right, verse 16. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire, desire will be for your husband and he will rule 
over you. All right, so I think most of us understand the first part. Uh, Childbearing, mothering, it's a primary way that a woman carries out the creation mandate, and so it makes sense that this would uh, be central to the judgment on the woman. The second part is not quite as clear, mainly because the word desire is used only two other times in the Old Testament and in two very different ways. All right, so Genesis 4, 7, it is a negative desire. So God is speaking to Cain. He says, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you. So that refers to like a, a mastery, a, um, a desire to, to dominate. In Song of Solomon 7.10, the same word is used of romantic, sexual desire. So I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. So is the verse describing a woman's desire to control and dominate her husband? Or is it describing a woman's propensity to make an idol out of her husband's affection? That is the million-dollar question, you guys. And at the end of the day, it's not as clear as we would like it to be. Uh, It's funny. I actually made a running list of which scholars supported which interpretation. And of the eight or so that I looked at, all of them complementarians, they were split right down the middle. (laughs) So it's just, again, one one of those places where there's not a ton of clarity. What we can be really confident about is that the word translated rule in that last line, he will rule over you, is not talking about the kind of loving, sacrificial leadership described in passages like Ephesians 5. This word is used exclusively of dominion, mastery, or lordship. And this is, again, it's very vital to our conversation uh, for us to understand that husbands who harshly rule their wives are not God's design. That is not God's plan. So abusive, controlling husbands exist because of the wickedness and rebellion of the human heart that is ultimately rooted in the events of Genesis chapter 3. All right? Now, what do you do when you find yourself seeking in a sea of conflicting interpretations? Well, you step back, you take a deep breath, and you ask, what's clear? right? That's all you do. You don't need to freak out. You don't need to read 15 other commentaries. Just take a deep breath, step back, and ask what's clear. Keep the plain things the main things. I cannot tell you with any amount of certainty what that word desire means. I can tell you with absolute certainty that what this is communicating to us is that one of the most tragic consequences of the fall is the alienation of the man and the woman, That one flesh union we celebrated just a few verses earlier has been fractured. And it is going to take constant effort to keep it intact. That is the point of that verse. That is what we can know for sure. And it's not nearly as scary as all the many, many things that have been written about this verse. All right, verse 17. And he said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which he commanded to you. Okay, let's deal with this, you guys. Listen to your wife, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat. Okay, those two phrases in a Hebrew sentence, you gotta, you gotta think of them as they're super glued together. So it's not two things that, that Adam did wrong. He did one wrong thing. He ate from the fruit and he got there by listening to his wife. But there's one, one sin in this passage. It is eating the fruit. And I'm gonna reiterate that later because it's like really, really important, okay? Because you listened to your wife and you ate the fruit of which I commanded you not to eat, 
The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. Uh, You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it. For you are dust and you will return to dust. All right, so we already established that work is not the curse. It's not a result of the curse. Work is good. Work happened before the fall. It's the toil, the painful labor that is a result of the curse. So instead of submitting to him, the ground will fight against him and ultimately swallow him. So much for those ambitions of divinity. They are not working out. (laughs) I think one of Adam's biggest problems was that he forgot where he came from. He forgot that he was of the dirt, just like every other creature on the planet. He forgot that his breath was actually God's breath. You look at that very last line of the judgment. For you are dust, and you will return to dust. And I wonder what might change if we meditated on that every morning. If instead of our, you are awesome today, go kill it, coffee mug. We had a coffee mug that said, you are dust, and to the dust you will return. What is notably absent in Genesis 3 is humility. Like there's not even a hint of it in the whole narrative. And I do believe we are intended to take note and be warned and search our own hearts for its absence as well. Verse 20, uh, yeah, verse 20. The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife and he clothed them. And the Lord God said, since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming whirling sword. Anybody else think of lightsabers when they read that? Yep, it was God's idea before Star Wars was ever a thing. All right, so a flaming whirling sword east of the garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. All right, so what we have here is what we could call a severe mercy. So access to the tree of life would mean living forever in a body, in a world corrupted by sin. So God exiles them to life outside the garden. And that word drove is very strong. So they, they, they are driven out. They are pushed out. Okay, there's more I want to say about that. I'm running out of time. So we are going to move on to part two, All right? That's a general overview. I feel like you guys can have a, a, a good enough grasp uh, of it from what I have said so far. All right, so let's look at these common claims and corresponding truths. All right, so number one, the claim from Genesis 2, it's not always made, but it's often made. Women are inherently more gullible and less capable of handling the word of God than men. The truth is, from a whole Bible perspective, the intelligence, wisdom, and teaching roles of women are affirmed again and again. The Bible does not tell us why the serpent targeted the woman. And any conclusions are mere speculations. What is clear is that never, not even once, is the slightest bit implied that women are more gullible or less capable of communicating God's truth than men are. 
Some of the most beautiful words of scripture are attributed to women. We've got Miriam's description of praise in Exodus 15, 21. You have Hannah's song recorded in 1 Samuel 2. Deborah's song recorded in Judges chapter 5. It's worth noting that all throughout the book of Proverbs, wisdom is personified as a woman. If we were inherently more gullible and prone to error, that metaphor would not make any sense. You fast forward to the New Testament, we see multiple references to women communicating God's word. Timothy was taught his scriptures from a young age by his mother and his grandmother. Priscilla, the wife of Aquila, helps instruct Apollos in Acts 18. In Titus 2, there is a direct command for older women to teach younger women God's truth. Now, Paul has a lot to say about women being silent in church gatherings, He never roots that instruction in their deficiency. There is literally not a single verse in the entire Bible that implies women are more gullible or suspect in their handling of the scriptures simply because they are women. All right? I looked. I was willing to find one, you guys. It is not there. Claim number two. Women are by nature temptresses. Watch out. The truth. The one and only tempter in the narrative is the serpent. Like we saw before, Eve did not have to twist Adam's arm or use her feminine wiles to coax him into eating the fruit with her. She ate, she gave it to him, and he ate. That's it. Now, in your homework, I had you spend a little time in Proverbs 5, which describes the folly and destruction of the adulterous woman. We also see her uh, being the focus of Proverbs 7. So do women seduce? Yes. That's the point of those chapters. Are women by nature seducers? Very different question. No, they are not. The temptress described in Proverbs 5 and 7 is one type of woman. There is absolutely no representation implied there. She is not a biblical caricature of all women everywhere. And where I see this false claim applied the most is in extreme boundaries set by men to ensure that they don't get caught up in sexual immorality. And I want to lay a significant emphasis on the word extreme in that sentence. I believe boundaries are good. None of us should be hanging out by ourselves with a man that isn't our husband, all right? That is unwise. It is also unwise to like be texting somebody else's husband right? Like, we don't need to be doing that. We don't need to email streams back and forth. There are certain boundaries that are really good and really healthy because we've all heard the stories, tragic stories, of people who have fallen into that, all right? So boundaries, awesome. Extreme boundaries, not awesome. All right, let me give you an example. I was listening to a podcast the other day, and um, there was a woman sharing her experience working as an assistant for a successful male conference speaker. And when they traveled, all sorts of gear and, and products had to travel with them. 
Because he was so determined to avoid even a hint of sexual immorality, he would not even take the same flight as her. He, she had to book a totally different, they left from the same city, they needed to arrive at the same time, but he mandated that she take a different flight. And guess who was left to lug all of the many, many bags to the conference center all by herself? The woman. That's what I mean by extreme. Ain't nothing gonna happen in an airplane full of people, right? But stuff like that, ridiculous stuff like that happens all the time. And it's often rooted, at least in part, in this false idea that women, by nature, are a problem to avoid. Whatever boundaries we establish ought to bless, protect, and communicate value to both parties. Number three, the claim. The real sin in Genesis 3 is Eve usurping Adam's authority and or Adam failing to lead. The truth, the one commandment in view in the entire narrative is the prohibition against eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and they break this commandment together. Now, we established last week that there is an ordering of the husband and wife evident from the very beginning, Genesis 2, before the fall. Right? We, we see hints that he is the primary responsibility of leadership and she comes alongside to partner with him as his strong and necessary ally, his helper. This ordering, if you fast forward to the New Testament, clearly affirmed there. But to read that ordering into Genesis 3 and then conclude that the fundamental issue here is the reversal of hierarchy is to place something in the text that simply is not there. The focus is the fruit. They ate the fruit. That's why they fell. That's why they were judged. Their sin radically affected gender dynamics, but there is no clear textual warrant for concluding that their sin was caused by gender dynamics. I think it's accurate to say that if Adam had led his wife as he should have, this may not have happened. It's not accurate to say that's the message of Genesis 3. You see what I'm saying there? If Adam had led, if he had done his job, this probably wouldn't have gone down the way it did. But that is not the point. All right? The one law they broke was the law concerning the fruit. And that's all we can say about the law breaking here. All right, to take it any further is to read things into the passage that aren't there. Number four, because of the fall, women are power hungry and controlling. The truth, because of the fall, humans are power hungry and controlling. All right, so we're headed back into verse 16 where it says, your desire will be for your husband. So interesting to me that this verse is often wielded as proof that women are by nature, contrary to their husbands, hungry for power and control, when the one word in this passage that is clear is the word rule. And that's applied to the man. (laughs) Like he is for sure contrary to his wife. (laughs) 
or prone to that, I should say. No one worth their salt is debating that. So again, when we take a step back, we take a deep breath, we ask what is clear, what's clear is that what this verse is getting at is that husbands and wives living under the curse of sin are both highly vulnerable to pursuing power over peace. I don't know about you, but I see this lived out in my marriage all the time. We both want control. We both want to be right. We both want the other person to apologize first. We both want to prove our point. And if I have to stay mad at you and not talk to you for three days to prove it, I will, right? That's a power grab, you guys. That's, it's a power thing. And there is mutuality in the human thirst for power. And I think we need to be careful about placing a larger burden of that on women because the Bible doesn't seem to do that. Again, can you make that case? Yeah, is it clear? Mm, no, no, it's, it's just not. We're, we're both like really bad at deferring to the other. We both want the power. We both want the control. And that's why marriage is so stinking hard, right? And it's rooted in the events of Genesis 3. Number five, the claim. The story of Eve is set in scripture as a cautionary tale, solely as a cautionary tale. This is only here for all of us to learn what not to ever do. The truth is that the story of Eve is set in scripture as a gospel prologue. I blessed you this week in the homework with some really affirming quotes from the early church fathers. I hope you enjoyed those. Good stuff. Tertullian poses the question, do you not know that you are each an Eve? He did not mean this as a compliment. But I want to propose to you that he should have. Because Genesis 3.19 is not the end of her story. And to appreciate the significance of this, we need to go back to verse 15 of chapter 3. All right, let's read it again. He's talking to the serpent. He's saying, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Now this verse is often called the Proto-Evangelium, which is Latin for first gospel. So tucked away in this horrible judgment oracle, we have a promise we have a glimmer of real hope that someday someone would be born who would defeat the serpent forever and always. And of course, we know who that is, don't we? We know it's Jesus. And what I want you to see is that far from demeaning the woman, the resounding message of the Bible moving forward is watch the woman. Watch the woman, because from her seed, the serpent crusher will come. I want to fast forward a little bit to 320, all right? I kind of brushed over this. I want to go back to it. It says, the man named his wife Eve because she was mother of all the living. Now, if I were doling out names that day, I would probably be more likely to pick one that meant 
mother of death (laughs) or destroyer of all that is good and lovely in the world, right? Why such a gloriously hope-saturated name? I think it's because Adam and Eve believed the promise of Genesis 3.15. They believed the serpent crusher would come and they believed that Eve would play a big role in that. And she does. She does. Now her mothering career does not start out well at all. Abel is a righteous son. And perhaps Eve thought that he was the promised one. Here he is already. But then he gets killed by his brother Cain, who by his actions reveals himself to be the seed of the serpent. So already this early, the conflict prophesied in 315, it's heating up. It is on. But I want you to look with me at Genesis chapter four, verse 25, because something just really profound happens after the death of her, her um, death of Abel. Cain leaves. Chapter four, verse 25. It says, Adam was intimate with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son. And she named him Seth, for she said, God has given me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. And a son was born to Seth also, and he named him Enosh. And at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. I believe in this name, God has given me another child I think what she's saying is that God has given me another potential serpent crusher. I thought it might've been Abel. Cain snuffed out his life, but God has given me another. And surely through this child, the promise would be fulfilled. You have to fast forward a really long way, but she was right. The serpent crusher, Jesus Christ, came from the line of Seth, Luke 3, 38. There's so much sadness in Eve's story, but right in the middle of all the sadness is this solid anchor of hope. God pursues them He slays an innocent animal to clothe them. He prevents them from living forever under the curse of sin. And then, a few thousand years later, he became the curse of sin, both for them and for us. Eve's story is not merely a cautionary tale. It is a rich gospel prologue. She is the first in a line of countless women who God will use in his plan to rescue fallen humanity and restore mankind to a new and improved Eden. 
Tertullian may have declared women to be the devil's gateway, but to God, to God, they are agents of redemption. That is the story of Eve. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I thank you for your word. Um, I just, I keep going back to that meme. Can't get it out of my mind. I messed up. I need to call my dad. God, I pray that in an ever-deepening understanding of your grace and your love for us would lead to that kind of response when we fail. And God, we certainly, in our pursuit of wanting to see the worth of women in this passage, oh, how awful it would be if we diminished Eve's failure. She failed so bad. And the very fact that that was not the end of her story, oh, it preaches a better word to us than anything this world would have to offer. And so God, I just thank you how, for how this points us to Jesus. I thank you for how it reveals your love and your grace and your redemption and the hope that we have in the gospel. And I thank you that it does indeed reveal your heart for women, our value and our worth. As we live our lives from Christ and to Christ and for Christ and unto Christ, Lord, I thank you that he is the source and sustainer of our worth. I thank you that in him we are made whole and complete and useful and empowered to do this great work that you have called us to. And I pray that that would be the work that we would um, go about this week. We love you. We thank you for what we're going to continue to learn. Um, this next week of study is, is heavy and hard. But I thank you that every heavy, hard thing in your word is always set in the context of gospel hope. That's amazing. And I thank you for that. In your precious name we pray, amen.